This is I Spy, a show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. Well, everything was going smooth. And then when that missile hit the aircraft, it just rolled and everything was on fire. My parachute was on my back and that back door was wide open, so I bailed out. And when I opened my chute, uh, I looked up and saw the aircraft go by. There's just nothing but a ball of flames going in. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week, we feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show, Eugene Hassenfuss was part of a secret U.S. government operation to supply guns and other equipment to the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. When a missile took down his plane, he was caught and interrogated by the Sandinistas, blowing the lid off the Iran-Contra affair. The year was 1986. The Sandinistas were fighting Contra insurgents around the country after overthrowing the American-backed dictator Anastasio Somoza. When the U.S. Congress outlawed most aid to the Contras, President Reagan ordered a secret operation to arm the group anyway. Hasidfuss served in Vietnam as a loadmaster, an airman in charge of loading and unloading cargo. He also worked for Air America, a CIA front company that conducted secret supply missions in Southeast Asia during the war. Years later, he was home in Wisconsin when he got a call from an old Air America buddy with an interesting job offer. That's where his story begins. Yeah, William Cooper, he's, uh, him and I are very dear friends. We flew together for years in uh, between Saigon and Laos and all around. And he was pretty good. He was one of the, the better pilots. And we did a lot of things, and he called up, and he says, I need your help. He says, we got a deal going on uh, down in Nicaragua. At that time, President Reagan was in, and he said, like, the Contra is my friend. And the Contras were getting really run over by the Sandinistas, who was supported very strongly by the Russians and the Cubans. So they didn't stand much of a chance. And this here was just a bunch of uh, support we could do for them. I hemmed and hawed around it, you know, and he called again the next day and that. And, uh, I told him, I suppose, and I got a passport and all that stuff. And we went down there. And uh, we talked and that, and we went to Southern Air Transport, which was the, more or less the sister airlines to Air America. But they they're left. They're in Miami. They got, they got their jets, and they got a lot of C-1 stretch. C-130s and that, they fly for a lot of covert stuff for the government yet. But uh, we flew out of there. When we got into El Salvador, San Salvador, uh, met a few of the people I knew and other people I didn't, and he didn't know who was who. So, but you could always tell the Americans, because they had all their windows really blacked out and they carried their radios around with them. What we had at the time was uh, one caribou and one C-123. 
Later on, we got a, a mall. It's just a little four-place uh, single-engine plane. But then we purchased another uh, C-123 and another Caribou. So we had four aircraft at that time. The C-123 being the superior. It's a much bigger aircraft. It carries twice the load. It can fly twice the distance and everything. Well, there were flights that we took off out of a uh, place in Honduras called Awakati. It was all set up. There was, it was mainly a hospital for, the, they had German doctors and that there for all these Contra troops and stuff like this. But uh, we had a nice airstrip and it was supplied by Americans and they'd have all these goodies there. Small arms and ammunition. Uh, Rusty rice, we used to call it, yeah. Overseas, that's what we called it, yeah. But uh, well, that's what we had, and we'd uh, go into these different teams, and sometimes we'd fly right directly out of Honduras into Nicaragua and hit our DZs. And other times, no, you couldn't, we had to fly. It was a long day. You'd take off out of Alapango, you go out to the coast, fly all the way south down to Costa Rica, come back over to the, fly to the east, then come back up north. So it just took just about all day. They paid us in cash. Huh? They'd take some money and then they'd pay you in cash and different things. The original price that they, were, they promised us was a uh, change. It was lower, of course. But everything was still okay. I don't know how many flights I made. Seven, eight, something like that. But uh, we were a little upset. Uh, they wouldn't give us any parachutes or anything. And in uh, emergency th situations that we were in, uh, we should have had them. Well, they said they couldn't afford them, which is silly. I, I went home one time only, just to see my family again and my brother and that. And I, I, I had money and I bought shoots from my brother and I brought them back. I think I brought about uh, six of them because there was only one aircraft flying at a time. So there was plenty and then something to, for reserves. Our navigation wasn't the best down there. It's a navigational deal where you come in, it's a special map where they, they go off different headings and stuff like that. And you set in your frequencies and you come and the numbers will bring you right into the spot. It's all they use it in Vietnam, but uh, it keep on breaking. You come in, you're on course, everything's fine, and you'd lose it. So we just look at the map like the old pilots did. You'd be falling along on the map and just different checkpoints and find out where you're at. It's, it's a very simple deal. Everything's on a skidboard. Small arms and ammunition. Some of them were up to uh, 10,000 pounds. And the shoe just snapped onto it, huh? And when you do get there, they got some old fire going down there with a lot of smoke coming out of it or something. And the pilot says, okay, drop and pull the nose up, you know, and you'll cut the strap and away it's gone. And then you'll just, uh, You'll stick the nose back down, 
little negative G and then you know, pull all your static lines back in and close her up and hide it a little back home. Well, we took off early one morning and uh, like I said, we just went out over the ocean, headed around straight south, headed all the way down uh, into Costa Rica. And then from Costa Rica, you'd head into Nicaragua. The trouble is, the C-123 is a great bird. And this heat signature goes back pretty far. These, these missiles at the Sandinistas, they had were Russian SAM-7. And that's all that missile got to do is catch that heat signature, then it follows it right up. Well, everything was going smooth. And then when that missile hit the aircraft, it just rolled and everything was on fire. My parachute was on my back and that back door was wide open, so I bailed out. If I would have went from here to that table over there to grab my rucksack that had everything I needed in it, I wouldn't have made it out. When there's nothing but fire and you can't even see the cockpit up front, and uh, everything's there, something in your mind is telling you it's time to go, you know. So I just fortunate I was standing in the door and then she just hit and rolled. It wasn't that loud at all. It was no big boom, it just was a woof. And she just rolled and there was nothing but flames, nothing. There's no way you could have made it up to the cockpit. There's no way you could have made it over to the other door. There's no way you could have made it to anything, uh, unless you wanted to be a barbecue sausage or something. So I bail out. And when I opened my chute, uh, I looked up and saw the aircraft go by. There's just nothing but a ball of flames going in. I was sort of glad to get out of that plane. It was a good shoot. It was a Mark I. It's a good glider, does its stuff, very steerable, everything. But no, when I did open it up and I looked up and I said, oh my God, you know. <laughs> and uh, I didn't realize it until I opened it, but it was a, a, a mosaic, a church mosaic. All these nice, beautiful colors and all that stuff. It don't make any difference from the ground, everything looks the same. But that's all I had is that and a, a 7.62 millimeter uh, pistol and, my, and a jackknife. That's what I had. When I landed on the ground, uh, I just dumped everything. You know, and I was expecting a lot of people down there, but there was nothing. I was expecting the Sandinistas because they were all around. They were thicker than flies. They had quite a few people out there after these, all the Contras. There's plenty of place to take cover there. It's, some of it's sort of jungle-like, and other parts it's open a little bit. Something like Africa, you know. I took what was left of that parachute I cut up, made a little hammock and a cover for over the top of me, and stayed the night. I don't know what I got for sleep, you know, it wasn't much. But the next morning, you know, I just grabbed it and wrapped it all up and made like a little backpack out of it and headed out. The sun was my compass. I was heading south and 
I come around this one corner and well, I run into all the Sandinistas. There was a whole, a whole load of them, huh? And I didn't mind the guys with the AK-47s, but the guy with the, with the RGPs and that point of that, so, no, that's it. All I had was a little pistol. <laughs> They had me from there, and they just took me down to the plane. They showed me the bodies, pushed me, sort of pushed me into them. They were both outside the cockpit, laying on the floor, dead, you know. So you can see where the engines were, the tailgate, the vertical stabilizer, and I saw my camera down there. And I had that camera in the sand, and he's coming. I said, "Whoops." <laughs> Anyway, yeah, those two engines, they were planted in the ground well. But one thing I will say, he did fly that thing all the way into the ground and he pulled and he stalled it, let it come in like that. But he got, they got burnt up too bad. When, when something like that happens, sometimes you can't get out. So that was it. And Spent that night, they took and tied me all up for mosquito bait. And the next day, uh, they flew in a, every reporter they could possibly find, you know. They brought him into this field out there, and then they had a report. They had several guards around me, uh, give me some uh, Russian sea rations to eat. Uh, and that, and then they, this other aircraft came in and took us off, and then we went into Managua. Yes, where everything changed there. It, it just turned into a hostile situation. You were cuffed right away, and you're pushed all around and thrown into an old black hole down there and stuff like that until they wanted to interrogate you more and interrogate you, interrogate you pull everything they could. They wanted to know where I was from, why I was there, what was the U.S. government trying to do, and different things like this. There are a lot of questions that you, you just sat there and you, you just didn't answer shit. You, you just let them look at you and you just act stupid, you know, ignorant. Uh, you were just a puppet. They'd bring in whoever they wanted to interview you and do everything, and, and they had quite a few people. Even a big bishop came in that one time. I said, what are you doing here? I said, he said, well, I come to give you some good feelings and titans, you know. I said, you're about the only one because I don't trust the rest of them as far as I can throw them. But otherwise than that, it was just a small little cubicle, you know, as far as they put a TV in there later on. But I think a lot of this boils down to the United States. I heard stories tell that, you know, when this whole thing started out and they had uh, Somoza and his National Guard, they were very mean to these people. They didn't like it at all. And there was a guy by the name of Sandino. He was like our George Washington, huh? And he started a revolution. He won. And he asked the United States, now can you help us? And the United States told him to go fly a kite. And the Russians just loved it, and he stole the revolution. Huh? 
because I'd give them a hard time. I call them stupid puppets. Why? I said, why is that Russian telling you what to do? Why can't you think for yourself? You know, and and later on, he put me up in this other cell with, uh, there was another, uh, he was half American. He was in jail over certain things. As, then they put him in more or less to try and get information out of me and that stuff. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Hey there, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, one of the producers of I Spy. This is our last show for the season, but don't worry. We'll be back soon with more episodes. In the meantime, I want to urge you to subscribe to Foreign Policy, where you can hear the bonus material we created for each episode, including additional clips and interviews. You'll also get to access all of the magazine's great content. So go to foreignpolicy.com slash ispypodcast to sign up. And now, back to the episode. Welcome back to iSpy. This is Margot Martindale. So, Eugene Hassenfuss is being held in Managua on terrorism charges. After a short trial, he's sentenced to 30 years in prison. In the U.S., his ordeal is overshadowed by the revelation that the Reagan administration had been supplying arms to the Contras in violation of a congressional ban. Eventually, a certain Democratic senator from Connecticut, Chris Dodd, flies to Nicaragua to help the American prisoner. Hassenfuss picks up the story from here. Chris Dodd was a Democrat. And the Sandinistas hated Reagan and any Republican. And he comes down there, he's a Democrat, and he knows these people, and he talks to them. And he could speak fluent Spanish, he was good. And he said a bunch of things, and we had uh, our lawyers and different things down there. In my own way, Knowing how these people work, uh, I figured there would be some kind of a deal worked out one way or the other. But I didn't know it was going to be that quick. And they just said, well, I guess it's time to let them go, you know. That was a surprise. But uh, at any time I figured something, something was going to change or something. I didn't trust anything. You never know what's going to happen. You know? I, it ain't my first rodeo, but uh, when that uh, commander of the jailer, he, he come up and he says, pack your stuff, you're going. So I said, wow, this is sort of neat. I didn't feel good though until that aircraft took off and I heard the landing gear click back up and lock. I diddle diddle, jumped on a plittle. And, yeah. When we got to, uh, Florida. It looks like there's a thousand people standing there, you know. And then you get in this hangar and it's just another thousand people. And you get up to this podium and there had to be at least 50 microphones there. And they expect you to tell everything that happened. I just said, I'm sorry, I'm really glad to be home in that. But there's sort of things that are happening right now that can't be talked about until a later date, you know, and uh, let it go at that. When we got in Green Bay, I mean, it was just, 
it was standing room only, huh? And then from Green Bay, uh, took a bus home. There was a lot of people, like I said, in Marinette, and I was very, very receptive. Very good. In fact, the, uh, this one individual has all these billboards. It wasn't that far from here. He put a big billboard up. Welcome home, Gene Hausenfuss, you know? And that was funny, because we're going along, and this fan stops alongside of us, and those kids are pointing over there, and they're pointing at us, and <laughs> But uh, no, the, the media just hounded us. You couldn't go any place. We couldn't even get a, go get a Christmas tree without them following us. They were in our yard thick. I mean, there was 10, 15 of them in the yard. And uh, that lasted for quite a bit. It was good to get back, but a lot of people, they thought you were a gun runner. They thought you were a mercenary. They thought different things like this. Well, they were mad that I lived. A lot of people come up and ask a question, Jesus, this and that. I says, no, it's just me, just plain me. There's nothing else. And forget all that other stuff. Uh, I went back to work and uh, said to heck with it, you know. I was a foreman and stuff like that. And now and then a few of the guys, they'd, they'd ask this or that. They're just curious questions and stuff. And that, that, that you expected. Well, I have never flown again. It's dangerous stuff. <laughs> anyway. After a while, when I did come home, you know, I, I wrote these things down so I wouldn't forget them. And I, I look back now and they, they bring back memories, you know. That's Eugene Hassenfuss. He now lives in Upper Michigan. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon helped produce today's show. The interview with Hassenfuss was conducted by Dan Efron. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us, ispy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Foreign Policy subscribers can go to our website to hear bonus episodes of iSpy with additional excerpts and interviews. If you're not a subscriber, go to foreignpolicy.com backslash subscribe for access to all of the magazine's great content. This episode concludes Season 1 of our show. iSpy will be back soon with more episodes. I'm Margot Martindale.